Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now well into our fourth season, and we remain just as excited as ever to continue to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung, heart issues, and more. So listen in today for today's episode on energy production and consumption. And today Today, we're going to be focusing in on health impacts of our current fossil fuel dominated, or should I say, dependent model. Now, energy and environmental problems are closely related. Since it's nearly impossible to produce, transport, or even consume energy without significant environmental impact. The environmental problems directly related to energy production and consumption include air pollution, climate change, water pollution, thermal pollution, and solid waste disposal. The emission of air pollutants from fossil fuel combustion is the major cause of urban pollution. Burning fossil fuels is also the main contributor to the emission of greenhouse gases. Diverse water pollution problems are also associated with energy usage and production. One problem is oil spills. In all petroleum handling operations, there is a finite possibility of spilling oil either on the earth or in some body of water. And then mining coal which is used to generate energy, can also pollute water. Changes in groundwater flow produced by coal mining operations often bring otherwise unpolluted waters into contact with certain mineral materials, which are then leached from the soil and they can produce some acid mine drainage. And then solid waste is also a byproduct of some forms of energy usage. Coal mining which is our predominant form for energy production, requires the removal of large quantities of earth as well as the coal. Now, from the electricity that lights our homes to the car you drive to work, modern life has relied on fossil fuels like coal, oil, and natural gas uh, for a while. In 2019, the estimated approximate use of coal-generated energy from that fossil fuel is approximately 75%. That is declining a little, though. But burning these fossil fuels not only creates climate change, it releases pollutants that lead to early death, to heart attacks, respiratory disorders, stroke. It exacerbates asthma and absenteeism at school and work. The World Health Organization estimates that approximately 7 million premature deaths were associated with air pollution in 2012 alone. Now, one of the most important health impacts associated with our fossil fuel-dependent energy production and consumption model is, of course, air pollution. Burning coal, oil, and natural gas releases dangerous pollutants 
into our atmosphere. And these pollutants have both long-term and acute consequences for human health, including, in addition to the others we mentioned, includes the risk of chronic bronchitis, lung cancer, depression, and, of course, exacerbating existing symptoms uh, like asthma and allergies. Another cruel consequence of burning fossil fuels is climate change that's caused by the greenhouse gases that are emitted. Global warming is a direct result of rising concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere due to the burning of carbon-related fuels such as coal, oil, and natural gas. And this has already caused numerous changes in weather patterns around the world, leading to more extreme weather events occurring like heat waves, heavy rain events, and floods that can cause displacement or illness in vulnerable areas and more and more encroaching into the areas that in the past perhaps were not vulnerable. Furthermore, it would lead to melting glaciers, which affects water levels throughout the world, as well as an increase in disease-causing vectors like mosquitoes carrying malaria to new areas where immunity to them has not yet developed in addition to many other things, a lot of which we haven't, we suspect, but haven't yet really proved or done all of the research that's needed. Now, in addition to its sometimes catastrophic health effects related directly to burning fossil fuels, such as air pollution, they also contribute significantly to resource depletion through extraction processes like deep water drilling or mountaintop removal that's used in coal mining. Such resource depletion leads both to environmental imbalances, when particular resources become overexploited, but it also leads to public health risk due to contamination via depleted groundwater reserves or nearby water sources when particular chemicals leach out during the extraction process. Today, we're going to look at the various health impacts, though, of using these energy resources. As well, we're going to look at the impact on our all-important and critical health care system, which, of course, over the last couple of years during the COVID pandemic, we've seen stressed in some unimaginable ways. And all of this certainly points to the urgent need for more clean energy solutions. Now, this is a lot. But here today to help us unpack and understand this some more are two experts, and we hope that they will make us smart, or certainly smarter. Today we have with us John Balbus and Garvin Heath. Now, Dr. John Balbus is the acting director of the Health and Human Services Office of Climate Change and Health Equity. He is a physician and public health professional with over 25 years of experience working on the health implications of climate change. John has served as the Health and Human Services Principal to the U.S. Global Change Research Program, and he co-chairs its working group on climate change and human health. And before this, he served as Senior Advisor for Public Health to the director of the National Institute of Environmental and Health Sciences, where we knew him before, and he was with us probably a couple of uh, seasons ago. John has also been chief scientist at the Environmental Defense Fund. Welcome, John, and did I get all of that right? You did. Thanks very much, Bernice. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us today. And our other guest is Dr. Garvin Heath. Garvin is the chair of the state of Colorado's Air Quality Enterprise Board. He is an air quality engineer by training, 
Ann Garvin specializes in the analysis of environmental impacts of energy systems, both renewable and conventional forms of electricity and fuels. John is an inaugural distinguished member of the research staff at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory at Golden, Colorado. And the National Renewable Energy Lab advances the science and engineering of energy-efficient, sustainable transportation and renewable power technologies and helps to provide the knowledge that we need or we have to have to integrate and optimize our energy systems. Garvin is also a senior research associate in the Renewable and Sustainable Energy Institute at the University of Colorado. Welcome, Garvin. Did I get all of that right? Yeah, thanks, Bernice, and uh, glad to be here for my first time. <laughs> Thank show. you, and we're very excited that you could join us today. I want to start out the questions with uh, John, and we'll start on this and probably have to go to break, but we'll catch up with it. John, so how does the, does the healthcare sector perhaps compare to other industries in its energy consumption, and what do you think the future looks like for health sector energy production and consumption? Thanks for the question, Bernie. So you, you laid out really well the fact that a lot of energy production and consumption in this country has health impacts on people across the United States, especially um, people who are in close proximity to roadways, in close proximity to sources of coal-fired power plant emissions, et cetera. But one thing that people don't recognize as much in this country is that the health sector itself is a really major contributor and user, a contributor to the pollution and, and user of energy. The health sector is the second biggest building-based uh, user of energy in the country. And, uh, you know, the health sector uses about 10% of all electricity that buildings use. So the health sector itself has a role to play in reducing energy consumption and changing over to renewable energy sources and, in so doing, reducing the harms to health that come from burning fossil fuels. Yeah, so the healthcare sector kind of has a double whammy, so to speak, in that it's producing, it's a great uh, consumer of energy, and just like we as humans are, and, and it's, a, it's a required sector, so we have to have the energy, so it has to change over. But as well, in its operations, administering healthcare, it also has a great impact. It goes the way of our health. So, again, that double whammy. I want to move now to Garvin. Garvin, how does energy production and consumption affect human health? We talked about it a little bit uh, in the introduction, but for a minute, just kind of summarize it for us, and then we'll go in more detail again on the other side of the break. Sure. To start, uh, all energy systems, all forms of energy do have some environmental impacts. And um, there are methods to try to compare those environmental impacts on a fair, sort of consistent basis uh, across those technologies. But uh, in short, um, whether we're getting energy from um, conventional energy sources or renewable energy sources, there are some impacts. But the comparison of those is quite stark on several metrics that we can talk about after the break. Indeed, but the point we've gotten that you've made very clearly is all energy production and consumption has some health impacts. And so after the break, we will reconnect uh, or start with Garvin so he can tell us about those stark impacts. 
Thank you. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, The Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care. Practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to today's show on energy production and consumption, focusing in on the health impacts of our current fossil fuel-dominated model. And we are here today with John Balbus, who is Acting Director of the Health and Human Services Office of Climate Change and Health Equity, and Garvin Heath, who is chair of the state of Colorado's Air Quality Enterprise Board, as well as with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado. Again, thank you all so much for being with us. And we're going to go back to Garvin, who was talking with us before the break, and made the point that is unassailable is that all energy production and consumption causes health issues. Uh, But again, he intrigued us and left us with the fact that the impacts are stark. So you want to take it from there, Garvin? Yeah, sure. Um, So I I guess they're starkly different. And there's there's a method that has been developed over the course of many decades now uh, called life cycle assessment, which tries to account for the full life cycle of energy of any energy technology and the product that it produces. So let's take electricity generation as an example. The product that electricity, no matter what source of electricity generation, uh, it produces a kilowatt hour of electricity. And if we compare on the basis of each kilowatt hour that's generated by the different generation sources, whether it's coal, natural gas, oil as fossil sources, nuclear, or renewable sources like solar photovoltaics, like wind, geothermal, et cetera. And we account sort of backwards. We look back from the generation of that uh, kilowatt hour and say, where did it come from? And what are all of the attributable impacts from where it came from? All the way from mining a fuel or mining the, the iron that goes into steel to construct the generation facility, and then through the operation of that facility and maintenance of it over its full lifetime of 30 years is a typical lifetime, for instance, of photovoltaics, could be 50 years for a coal-fired power plant. And then we go all the way through to the end of life and capture what happens when we have to dismantle this, dispose of, of the materials or recycle those materials, gaining some credits from doing that, from offsetting primary materials production at the end. If we look at that full life cycle, Now we have a consistent basis to compare all these energy technologies. And if we do that accounting, then, for instance, we can look at life cycle greenhouse gas emissions. Greenhouse gas emissions causes climate change. Climate change has health impacts. 
And so that's a relationship to the health um, for our society. And uh, those, of course, climate impacts uh, in health in numerous ways. But if we look at just the greenhouse gas emissions on a life, this life cycle, this consistent basis by comparison, comparing all the generation technologies, coal has uh, a benchmark value of about 1,000 uh, grams of CO2, of carbon dioxide equivalent gases, so including the accounting for methane, including the accounting for nitrous oxide, 1,000 grams of CO2 equivalent per kilowatt hour. Natural gas, on the other hand, has a benchmark value of around 500, maybe just a little bit less. Renewables and nuclear are at about 50 grams CO2 equivalent or less. Wind is often down around 10. Solar photovoltaics is around 20. Sometimes you get a little bit higher than that. But you can see that that's two orders of magnitude lower than coal and at least an order of magnitude lower than natural gas. Uh, just on the life cycle greenhouse gas emissions basis. That's amazing. So, that's amazing. Like yeah. you said, that's amazingly or starkly different. And right. I right. venture to say that that is not out there in the public domain. But that's okay because we, we need to have things that are easily understandable. But I think they we definitely get the point <laughs> that these fossil right. fuel uh, generated electricity is is highly harmful. Now, let me ask you this. I I mentioned a little bit in my intro, and when I was doing research, I kept coming across different figures. But what are your numbers in terms of the percentage of our electric uh, generation that's generated by coal, natural gas, nuclear, and renewables? Yeah, so it's been changing over the course of of several decades, um, and in particular over the last decade where coal had been the majority, I think even greater than 50% of that total, whereas now it's about 30% of the national total. And of course, in some areas, it's a lot higher, and in other areas, it's a lot lower. Um, But on a national basis, nuclear, I think, is holding roughly steady at around 20%. Natural gas has been gaining uh, on the back of, of coal, losing market share, as have renewables. So gas is now at 40-odd percent, and renewables, I, I think, is around total of 10, 10 to 15 percent. And, of course, partially that depends on how you count hydropower, which is the largest renewable still. Uh, but some people don't like to put it in the same category as, as solar or, or wind. Indeed. And those are U.S. percentages. I have to think that probably yeah. global, it's quite different, isn't it? Or is it? Um. In some ways, it's different. In some ways, it's, it's broadly similar. I mean, oh, okay. uh, coal is increasing. Um, I mean, in some regions, it's decreasing, like the U.S. And, and Europe. In other regions, it's increasing, and sometimes relatively quickly. Um, so it's it's holding more steady globally than than the picture in the U.S. or, or Europe. Gas is increasing in market share pretty much everywhere, but but some places maybe maybe not as much because of the coal increase. Uh, renewables are increasing everywhere, but that's as a percent. You you can have an absolute increase in renewables, and still the percent is the same, or even the percent declines because overall we're having to grow the and the generation of electricity globally to meet the growing needs of economies and people um, as they're developing. Indeed, thank you for that. Uh, I, I want to ask though too, Garvin. I know you have worked um, on the Association of Air Quality and 
health benefits of electrifying our combustion-based transportation systems and buildings. Will you tell us about what your research is showing? What are the benefits and what encouraged you all to do this type of research? Yeah, well, we've done that research in a, in a few different contexts. Nationally, we've focused more on just the power sector and all, a little bit less on the transportation and buildings. We've also done a, a specific study for the city of Los Angeles and their um, municipally owned, that is city owned, Department of Water and Power. So that Department of Water and Power owns, um, owns power plants in the Los Angeles basin, as well as actually one in, in Utah uh, that they have direct lines to, to bring that power into. But as a city, they've even gone beyond the state of California's um, interest in going to renewables and are doing it faster um, for the city of Los Angeles. The city of Los Angeles is also a challenging place to analyze going 100% renewable because it's surrounded by ocean on one side and mountains on the other. And so it's actually relatively hard to get transmission lines to get that power into the city. And there's only, obviously, Los Angeles is very well developed. There's not a huge amount of open land uh, to put solar or wind systems into the city itself. So there is some ability to do that, you know, on top of parking lots, on top of buildings. Um, But even maximizing that, you're going to have to get some power from outside the city to bring in. And in that circumstance, um, they're still able to find, NREL actually helps them to identify pathways to go to 100% renewable. And we also estimated, I led the environmental analysis component of that study called LA100, or 100% renewable energy for the city of Los Angeles, Department of Water and Power. And... um, we identified uh, the benefits in terms of air pollutant emissions and the resulting air quality and health effects. And they're, they're quite substantial. But for the city of Los Angeles, the five power plants that are owned by the Department of Water and Power are very small emission sources compared to transportation from 20 million odd people who live in, that, in the Los Angeles area and all of those buildings. So electrifying buildings and transportation for the city of Los Angeles' circumstance made a much higher impact as far as the benefits to health from the air pollutant emissions reductions, as well as actually improvement to equity outcomes, environmental justice outcomes in the city, were much more greatly affected by transportation electrification than and buildings electrification than from um, going to renewables for the power sector. And I imagine that's really the specific case of Los Angeles, right. but it's also an interesting lesson to think about for potentially uh, how it could be applied to other places. Indeed, and I imagine that would have to be different for city uh, other places like New York, or something like that, where they don't have this car-driven uh, society like they do in LA. So, what's what you say? We just have a few minutes to go for break, and then we want to catch up with John on the other side. What would you yeah. say sources of electrification, though, offers the most benefits and which are more likely to be adopted quicker and be more widespread use? It, so that, that, the answer to that question really depends on, on the location. Where? So yeah. the city of Los Angeles, for instance, has um, very large ports. You know, the largest port in the, in the country is um, just on the border of the city of Los Angeles on the coast, and it shares another sister port with the city of Long Beach. Now, electrifying ports can be of huge benefit to a city like Los Angeles. Other cities aren't necessarily going to have such a large port source. The ports have a lot of activity of heavy-duty trucks and medium-duty trucks, and electrifying those along corridors that go in and out of the port is also very important for a city like Los Angeles. could be different for other cities. 
But in general, transportation sources are the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions and often the largest source of other air pollutant emissions for metropolitan areas around the country. But rural areas, you know, might look different. Uh, agricultural sources might be larger there. And so thinking about electrifying those. But you, you're basically saying that in terms of energy production and consumption, that there's more harm caused by transportation as opposed to the energy that's generated from our power plants, but that that is regional. Yeah, regional, if not local. In general, for, for instance, for greenhouse gas emissions, the transportation sector has surpassed the power sector as the leading source of greenhouse gas emissions. So that's the national picture, but it really varies locally. And I imagine it's different also on the global stage. Thank you so much. We're going to go to break now, and we'll be back with John Balbus with HHS and Garvin Heath with uh, State of Colorado's Air Quality uh, Enterprise Board and the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Thank you all. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. To today's show on energy production and consumption, focusing in on health impacts of our current fossil fuel dominated uh, model. And we are back with John Balbus and Garvin Heath, and they really are making us smarter. Want to go back to you now, John, and talk a little bit more about the healthcare sector and its double whammy. That double whammy being how it adds to the uh, energy production and consumption uh, ills, but also it's impacted by it. And so I want to focus a little bit now on the impacts of energy production and consumption on the healthcare system. And, and generally, if you can kind of explain to us what those impacts are and, and why people should care about it. Sure. So let me just start by making a few things really, really clear when we're talking about energy in the healthcare sector. The first is, as you noted, Bernice, the healthcare sector in this country is maximally stressed by the COVID pandemic, by the many years of the COVID pandemic. And so any kind of interventions we're talking about when it comes to energy in the healthcare sector have to keep several things front and center. First is that we have to make sure that whatever we're doing with respect to energy in the healthcare sector, that it does not in any way impair the quality of care or worsen health outcomes. So everything that we're talking about is not only about reducing the impact of the operations of healthcare facilities on air quality and other kinds of environmental impacts, but it really comes down, some of the most important considerations are that we cannot in any way compromise the reliability of the energy of a healthcare facility because that is front and center the most important thing that we have to maintain. And the fact is, when we look at disruptions related to climate change, related to extreme weather, related to other kinds of, of problems that are disrupting energy supplies, if the grid goes down or if there's you know massive kinds of hurricanes, floods, you know, like we've seen many, many times in this country and, and around the world, sometimes the ability to have renewable energy on site and a microgrid is providing a way for that facility to stay in operation where otherwise it would go down and people would have to be evacuated. And we know that that's something that leads to people losing their lives or, or having complications. If they're in a hospital, they're having to be evacuated while they're you know, dependent on power. That's a really bad thing. So I just want to make it really clear. What we're talking about today is about not only ensuring 
the quality of care and that health outcomes, if anything, go up and not down from the changes we make because we're making the systems reliable um, in a setting of, of weather disasters. But they also can't cost more. Our health sector is, you know, a lot of facilities, especially community health centers and, and safety net hospitals, are kind of on the ropes right now financially because of the stresses on them from the COVID pandemic. And again, the good news is that with the reduction in costs of renewables, most of the healthcare facilities that make a switch and start, you know, installing their own solar and, and, and having on-site generation are saving money. And that means more money is flowing into the care of patients. Indeed. Well, now I have to call it a triple whammy because you brought in the aspect of cost, <laughs> which I hadn't dealt with. Uh, but, John, can you tell us a little bit more? Are there any examples out there or tell us about some healthcare facilities where they are doing good work in terms of using renewable energy on site and having their own micro microgrid? Because we've all seen the, 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 the pictures uh, in reality and sometimes on television shows, you know, of hospitals flooding. They have to move out sick people and all of those things due to uh, a lot of the uh, extreme weather events that are brought on by climate change. So tell us about some things that are that are actually happening with this. So there are a number of leaders out there that are committing to, to very significant reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, you know, in line with or exceeding the, the Biden administration goals of a 50% reduction in direct uh, emissions associated with the direct use of energy by, by 2030 and a net zero by 2050. Um, Kaiser Permanente is, is one of those health systems that is it used extensive ins, installation of solar panels, uh, especially on the West Coast. Um, and uh, they're they're one of the examples where they're 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 noting the the decrease in 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 costs associated with that. You know, one of the things that's happening now is that in the wake of Hurricane Maria, where there was such devastating loss of power, and you know we've documented a really tragic increase in death rates after Hurricane Maria for months because of the loss of um, access to healthcare systems, either because the roads are damaged, but in many cases just because the healthcare facilities had no power for such a long time. There's been a lot of, of, of movement to uh, install solar as a, as, a, as a means to have a reliable uh, energy supply for healthcare facilities within Puerto Rico. This is also going around, on around the world. We're seeing a lot of electrification and, and um, solarization of healthcare facilities in Africa. USAID is working on this. Um, it's, it's really a way, again, it's, it's, you know, in many cases, the, the large hospitals are, are major consumers, and in some cases, it may be hard to have enough uh, to have 100% solar, but it's one of the ways in which healthcare facilities are both reducing their impacts on the communities that they're serving in. Right now, the, the default is to have a diesel generator that goes on, and a lot of these diesel generators are located right in the communities, and they're, they're sending their emissions right into the neighborhoods. You know, and, and, of course, diesel power, diesel fuel can be a limiting factor. Uh, in places like New Orleans, where the power went out for weeks at a time, people started having problems with diesel fuel. And so you know, having on-site, renewable, continuous power is, is, is part of the solution to to both the reliability of the system and the quality of the care, but also reducing those health impacts from the emissions.
Indeed. And that's a, a new one I think that people probably had not thought about unless they lived in New Orleans and experienced it. And that's the the mm-hmm. uh, the emissions and the other impacts from the diesel fuel. Now, you mentioned microgrid. Uh, talk about that. I know when I used to live in downtown Miami, our, our saying was I, I could see the hospital from my 14th story. And the saying was, oh, you'll be safe. Your power won't go out because you're in the grid with the hospital. So, you know, I can't say that I'm an expert in, in <laughs> grids and, and the provision of, of electricity. But when I use the term microgrid, what I'm referring to is the ability of a healthcare facility to actually isolate itself That's from the rest of the grid. And this is being provided in some instances, not everywhere, but, but this is something that is happening in some instances to, to enable the, the hospital to in, some, in, a, in a, an emergency to go offline and be able to continue its operations because the rest of the grid has failed. I, and that's what I thought it was, but I wanted to, to get a good understanding that, that it has that microgrid where it's kind of, it's supposed to be kind of protected from the impacts of the, of the rest of the, the grid, which is something that really we would all like our hospitals to be when we have emergencies and extreme weather events uh, going on. But thank you for that explanation. So I want to go back now to, to Garvin and talk a little bit uh, about solar which seems to be one of the most widely adopted renewable energy technologies, yet there are, as you mentioned, human health risk with that. So will you tell us about some of the risk associated with solar, and what can we do to mitigate or eliminate some of these risks? Sure. So solar presents a, a different set of risks and also at a very different level than other energy sources such as um, fossil-based systems. Um, so when you look at that full life cycle, you think about where your materials are coming from and the manufacturing of your components, your technology, and then the operation, and then the end of life. In those three phases, a fossil-based system will have impacts that are centered on the operation, the, the combustion of the fossil fuel and the emissions that come from that, whether greenhouse gas emissions or other air pollutant emissions, whether handling of the coal ash that comes off of that or handling of the mining, handling of the coal you know, from there, et cetera. Renewables have impacts that are mainly based on this, what we call an upstream stage, which is the manufacturing. Where do materials come from? How do we extract those materials? How do we manufacture them? In the operation of a solar facility, there's no combustion. It's basically just sitting there in the sun and everything's in place. And so there's really not, not a lot going on. But there are a couple of circumstances where during the operation of a solar facility, um, we have investigated whether there could be health risks above US EPA thresholds for cancer and, co- and non-cancer risk. Those include if PV is exposed to fire, and now you have the burning of some of the polymers, the plastics that are in that are in these cells, or if PV is cracked, if the, if the glass is cracked, water can get in to maybe then leach the heavy metals that are within the semiconductor layer that are protected by glass, but then could get into the water. The water then gets into the soil and it gets into the water table, et cetera. Both of those circumstances, when we quantified them, presented very, very low risk. Additionally, we looked at the end of life. People have expressed concern about what do I do at the end of life with a solar panel? And if it went into a landfill and I crushed that all up, could the leaching of the heavy metals within the solar panel get out of the landfill and then expose people in from the water table and drinking water and soil, et cetera? We looked at that and quantified those risks as well. And again, they were, they were 10 to 100x below 
US EPA cancer and non-cancer risk thresholds. So at least for those three different exposure scenarios for, for photovoltaics, for solar panels, we did not find risks that, that, had, that were at that trigger level for EPA to say, we need to investigate this further. It might present a health risk that we would need to be concerned about. And as far as what's happening in the manufacturing facilities, those all need to have proper controls for any of their processes that would produce air pollutant emissions. They need to manage their, their water effluent and their solid waste, just like any manufacturing facility should, to meet regulatory requirements, which of course are different and generally higher when they're manufactured in the U.S. than if they're manufactured in some other countries around the world. Um, but as we gain in that manufacturing capacity, and in particular because of the Inflation Reduction Act and all of the incentives that are provided for manufacturers to onshore that manufacturing of clean energy technologies in the U.S., we are going to bring those manufacturing facilities here, and we do need to manage to operate and manage them properly according to the regulations that we have. Indeed, but basically, the the health risk at this point of our knowledge base uh, is 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 relatively or very low as it relates to solar. A lot lower. Um, they just they just don't have the same kind of emissions, whether we're talking about to water or to air, but in, especially in particular to air, right. because combustion systems yeah. have. We're going to go to break now. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we're going to go to break now. And we'll be right back on the other side with John Balbus with HHS and Garvin Heath with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Thank you all. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, The Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, none mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to today's show on energy production and consumption, focusing on health impacts of our current fossil fuel dominated or dependent model. And we are back with John Balbus, Acting Director of the Health and Human Services, Office of Climate Change and Health Equity, and Garvin Heath uh, with the State of Colorado's Air Quality Enterprise Board and with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado. Again, thank you all for being with us, and they really are making us smarter. I want to start uh, this segment back with uh, with John. And, and you talked a lot about, again, what I now know is a triple whammy with health care. It's the, um, the impacts on their own energy use and production, its operations, the impact of the health care they actually provide from the other vestiges of our energy production, as well as the cost 
and, and that's very new for us. But how have climate change-related disasters contributed to health and health care problems in our country and, and, and globally that we need to really, that you feel that we need to really focus in on? Well, right, because, you know, if we just look at the last three years, we see a lot of examples, and we've talked about some of these. So, you know, we've been in the midst of a pandemic. We've been locked down. We've been, you know, in a situation where emergency rooms and intensive care units have been full, and yet we have had increasingly severe and, in some cases, relatively unprecedented climate change-related extreme weather events that have either worked to compromise the healthcare facility directly through impacts of flooding or, or, or loss of power, or put huge stresses on, on people in the communities. So, you know, this includes things like the unprecedented heat dome in the Northwest, um, where, you know, we had hundreds of deaths because that area, you know, did not have the same kind of prevalence of air conditioners in buildings. They weren't used to that heat. It was heat that, that, that the buildings weren't built for. So there was a tremendous health impact, but at the same time, the healthcare facilities were reeling too, not just from the challenge to their cooling systems, but there were also concomitant wildfires at the exact same time. So there was a lot of issues there with the smoke getting into the healthcare facilities and the kind of filtration that they needed to keep the air quality inside the building healthy for their patients. So that's one example. Um, if we look at, at the hurricanes that struck the Gulf Coast, that you know many of which were, were fueled by very warm Gulf waters that have been warming for decades associated with the overall global warming pattern, that warm Gulf water leads to this rapid strengthening of hurricanes. And we saw that again and again, Hurricane Ida, Hurricane Michael, um, striking the, the Florida Gulf Coast. And um, you know, with Hurricane Michael, there were 1,000 patients evacuated. There were about 17 healthcare facilities that, that had to shut down because of either damage to the building and intrusion of water from you know, pieces of the roof flying off or windows breaking or, or from flooding. So, so we're, we're, we're seeing examples like this in, in, in the case of the, the devastating flooding that occurred in Kentucky uh, you know, this, this, this past year. You know, there were, there were a lot of community health centers uh, that, that were affected uh, by the flooding and, and the loss of, of access because, because people were unable to get to them. So this is all happening at the same time that, that the, the, the beds are full because of COVID. So it really speaks to the need to find cost-effective ways to enhance the resilience of the healthcare facilities so they can you know, maintain operations so they can handle surge from, from a heat event or, or something like that and, and be able to keep going. So what have we learned, John, in, in, in terms of healthcare system, healthcare facilities, and natural disasters? And I don't know, I guess you could call COVID a natural or disaster, or natural disasters, or what is it, health pandemics and climate change. What do we learn from that? Well, I hope we're learning the lessons we need to learn. And, and you know, there, there, there's, there's one big lesson that I talk about that, that the COVID pandemic has just, you know, made very, very stark, which is that the people who have the, are affected the worst, who, who suffer the most in the case of the COVID pandemic are in many cases the very same people who are most at risk and suffering the most in the setting of a heat wave, in the setting of a flooding event, in the setting of a wildfire. And, you know, it is 
the, the population, it's our essential workers, it's low-income populations, it's recent immigrants, populations with low, low language proficiency. You know, I, I, I talk sometimes about Hurricane Ida, which came in and, and, and struck the coast in Louisiana and caused a lot of problems in, in Louisiana. But the greatest, the greatest death toll was actually in, in northern New Jersey and New York City because that storm hooked, you know, connected with a huge uh, rain event led to horrific, devastating flooding. And there were dozens of deaths in, in, in Brooklyn, in Queens, in, in, in northern New Jersey uh, from people being flooded in their basements and, and dying in their basements. And most of those people were, were immigrants from South Asia because those were low, in, you know, low rent uh, dwellings and, and it was recent immigrants who lost their lives there. So that's the most important lesson is that we need to ensure that the safety net hospitals, that the part of our health system that is directly serving the communities who have multiple causes for health disparities, multiple deprivations of social determinants of health, and in most cases linked to historic and systemic racism and, and deprivation of the whole work that's been done to show the, the ongoing legacy of, of practices like redlining, where you know advantageous interest rates for mortgages led to lower home ownership, led to less accumulation of wealth over decades. And now those are the, the communities that have you know often high transportation-related air pollution. This has been shown in studies. They have higher heat waves, uh, higher, higher um, temperatures in, in, in urban heat islands. And, and so, you know, having a focus on our, the, the populations experiencing the, the burden of, of health disparities is a win-win when it comes to pandemics, when it comes to climate impacts and other environmental justice concerns. And I think yeah. although we have our society and our culture has been slow, very, very, very slow to learn, I think that one of the learnings that society has gotten from all of this is that it's not an option that those of us who do not perceive ourselves to be part of those vulnerable populations, it's not an option that we care. We must care because we are equally affected, but in very, very different ways, but affected nonetheless. Uh, we are all suffering from some supply chain issues and other issues due to the decimation uh, of our essential workers who are in that, a lot of them in, the, if not most of them in that uh, category of low-income and minority workers because they have uh, been decimated or their health has been decimated. We can't get the things that we need, and many of the things that we need are just astronomically going up in price. So, again, the rest of us who are not really part of that, are uh, that was one of the learnings that we got, that we have to be concerned. So thank you certainly for bringing that up. Absolutely. If, you know, ethics and compassion for disadvantaged people isn't enough to care deeply about their well-being and that they're protected in the setting of these events, there are economic links that come back to everybody in this country. And, you know, I, I think the lesson of COVID and the lesson of climate change is absolutely we are all in this together. Indeed. And one of the things I say often on the show is all of these uh, environmental issues, climate change issues, they're coming for all of us in, in terms of the impact. It used to be thought that, oh, they just, you know, flooding may just be related to uh, low-income minority communities because they don't have good infrastructure, whatever. Well, you know, they are now impacting places they never thought of. So it's, it's, it's coming for all of us. Uh, we just have three minutes to go, and so I want to jump back to uh, Garvin 
before we leave. Gerben, how do you how do renewable energy sources actually impact health in developing countries and how does or can this help to inform our behaviors and policies here in the US? Uh, definitely energy technologies in general uh, impact people wherever they live and uh, we generate that energy for instance electricity in all countries in the world and really you know in all regions um, the air pollutant emissions that come from combustion systems um, are uh, a huge um, e- extracting a huge toll of death and morbidity so disease not death but disease outcomes around the world uh, in particular from coal, but also from other fossil fuel sources. Uh, we completed a recent study for the 10 Southeast Asian countries uh, and looked at scenarios of renewables um, displacing some of the growth in uh, electricity generation sources like coal and gas in that region. Um, because of expected electricity generation growth or demand, and that would be met by increasing the, the number of generators, number of power plants, uh, and coal providing a, a continued large share of that. Overall, even with uh, a, additional effort focused on trying to get more renewables into that network of 10 countries and their grids, there was still environmental impacts uh, increasing. But as renewables um, grows and share and displaces, it does provide benefits, in, especially for air quality and health. It would seem that with the developing countries, they are developing, the populations are growing, that that provides a really unique opportunity for them to, to engage in uh, renewable energy technology since they're having to do this anew. But let me ask you one, yeah. one question, and then we really have to, to go. Where do you think... I guess what country do you think is really maximizing renewable energy technologies in terms of of actually adopting and and putting it to use? Who's the leader with this? Who's the leader? Um, well, it started out with Germany, and we have we have a lot to thank for Germany and the subsidies they provided to their early solar industry and the installation of that for the cost curve that we've experienced, where we've gone down ninety percent. Uh, of the cost of uh, solar photovoltaics because of those, really because of those early subsidies and then later subsidies from other countries. But I will call out um, a couple of countries, maybe three, that I believe are engaging in what are called just energy transitions. Um, and those are Indonesia, um, Vietnam, and South Africa. All three have um, signed on to agreements with multilateral institutions like the World Bank and others to transition their economies away from coal and towards renewable sources. Thank both of you all. You really have made us smarter uh, today in, in, in terms of looking at this intersection of health and energy production, as well as uh, its impact on our health care system. We have been today with Dr. John Balbus, Acting Director of the Health and Human Services, Office of Climate Change and Health Equity, and Dr. Garvin Heath with the National Renewable Energy Lab, as well as the State of Colorado's Air Quality Enterprise Board. Thank you all. We really appreciate you being with us today. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. 
Our culture is the result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of these acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you for listening today and listening again next week for more of Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. And you can catch any of our past shows on podcast wherever you get yours. Thank you. Thank you.